And tonight we are uh, in chapter 9 of 2 Corinthians as we continue to travel through the New Testament, verse by verse and chapter by chapter. And we are in the middle of this subject of Paul taking up or uh, an exhortation to receive an offering for the suffering Christians in Jerusalem. But he lays out the most explicit details, principles for giving in all of the New Testament in chapter 8 and chapter 9 of 2 Corinthians. And so if you want to know the principles about giving to the work of the Lord and to help others and to see the gospel preached, and as Jesus said, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, thieves break in and steal it, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And the way that we do that is we can't take our money with us when we die. We're going we're gonna to leave it all behind. But what we can do is send it ahead through giving generously and consistently. Two things, generously and consistently to the work of the Lord. And as he picks it up, we're in the middle of this subject. So if you want to get more of the earlier chapters that we spoke of in chapter eight, I'd encourage you to get the tape. But it says in verse six, as he lays out the measure and the attitude and God's supply as a result of that in these next couple of verses. But this I say. He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So this is the principle of the measure. People are always asking, well, how much should I give? Should I tithe? Should I give 10%? I think that's a great practice. It's before the law and it's given during the law. But afterwards, it's more thought of as a great place to start with generous giving. And as Paul the Apostle lays this out, he just simply says, and you, you guys who have grown up a, in an agricultural area know exactly what he's talking about to the measure of giving. If a farmer wants a lot of grain, he sows a lot of grain into the ground. Now, these potato farmers around here, they have to spend $1,200 an acre to plant seed spuds. And that, that's a huge investment, $1,200 an acre, and, and uh, no doubt praying for even the hardest-hearted farmer, praying for a little sunshine and rain to make that work, since that's a huge investment. And whatever you plant in the ground, you don't want to be sparing when you're sowing seed as a farmer in the ground. You want to be generous so that the crop will be 30, 60, 100-fold, a bumper crop. And the same thing is true financially. I just simply ask you, and declare to you that this is the principle. Do you want to be blessed sparingly or generously? If you are sparing and you're giving to the work of the Lord and the things of the Lord and in generosity, then from the Lord, that's what you receive. But if you want to bless and give generously, then you cannot outgive God and God will bless you. To, in proportion to what you give. So that's the measure. So that is the New Testament principle. Anytime somebody asks you about tithing or giving in the New Testament as a Christian, you take them right to this verse, chapter 9, verse 6 of 2 Corinthians, you say, this is the principle of giving. Now that's the measure with which you are to measure depending on how much you want back. Now this is the attitude that he wants you to give with in verse 7. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. God wants the attitude of your heart. Now it does not matter 
whether the farmer that sows seed in his field has a good attitude about that sowing or not. That planted, he could be the most griping, complaining farmer on planet earth. Doesn't matter, his seed's still going to grow. But when it comes to spiritual things, God cares about your attitude and how you go about it. And he tells us what we're not to do. First of all, he says, let each one uh, give as he purposes in his heart. So here with the diversity of the people that are here tonight, each one of you determine the purpose in your own heart with which you want to give based on the principle of measure sparingly or generously depending on if you are sparing or generous or somewhere in between or over and above or you don't give it all that's the principle that's the measure you're going to get back but this is the attitude in which you're to do it you are to decide you see what i give may not be what you're giving each one of you are to purpose in your heart and so i don't lay some heavy trip on our congregation and say this is what i do this is what you must do you need to pray and you need to seek the lord and let the spirit of the lord lead you in these things based on these principles isn't it a great thing to be free in jesus aren't you glad we don't send the god squad to your door and knock on the door and want your tithe aren't you glad we don't send you a bill hey give to us that's not the attitude. As a matter of fact, unless I'm teaching through 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, I'm not talking about giving. Because that's, if you're a visitor here, I apologize that you chose to visit tonight. Because this is not what we used to do. Hey, they're going to take the offering or something? No, we're not going to take the offering. You see, most churches, when the door is open, they take an offering because it's a great opportunity. But Sunday nights, we don't receive an offering. On Wednesday nights, we don't receive an offering. We do it on the uh, weekend, Saturday night and Sunday morning. And there's an offering box. If you uh, want to give to the work of the Lord, then just do that. But the attitude is that you purpose in your heart as you pray and the Holy Spirit leads you based on these principles of the measure, sparing or generously, and also purposing in your heart how you can do it, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Don't give so that it makes you sad. Don't give so that it makes you mad. Give so that you can be glad. Those attitudes are so important to the Lord because the Lord, you see, He would tell you, if you're going to give and you're going to do it grudgingly, I'm so bummed out I have to give. I got to do something because it doesn't look Christian, you know, not to put something in the plate when it comes around. Or we have bags, plates, whatever. Something comes around and so you grudgingly throw something in. Or you grudgingly, well, you know, your wife nudges you or the husband nudges you and, hey, write the check, write the, you know, write the stupid check, Toby, You'd probably be better off going out to dinner at Johnny Carino's than you would putting that check in there because your attitude is not right. You're sad about it. Or necessity. Let me tell you, brothers and sisters, we're not going to be able to... They're going to turn off the, the power if we don't get an offering right now and this and that. And it, It's funny to me, so many of the TV evangelists who are, quote, faith teachers. <laughs> this is kind of oxymoron there. And, and, and they're begging, you know, if you don't give, we're going to go off the air. We're going to do this and we're going to do that. You just like, aren't you? Apply some faith, brother. <laughs> Apply some faith. And not all of them is that way, don't get me wrong. But the thing is, is that it's not of necessity. You know what? I'm convinced if we're doing God's will, He's going to supply all of our needs. I'm just convinced of that. If we are doing the Lord's ministry the way He wants, He's going to supply all of our needs according to His riches and glory. And where God guides, He provides, and He's going to take care of us. 
We, we have never put pressure on the congregation, even though we have building projects and we have all kinds of things. We just trust the Lord, and He provides according to His needs. Thirdly, it's not of grudging or sadness or necessity making you mad because of the pressure to do something, but the Lord loves a cheerful giver. You see, the measure's not only important to the Lord. He'll reward you according to the measure that you sow, but your attitude of cheerfulness. This word in the Greek is the word hilarious. The Lord loves a hilarious giver. Now, wouldn't it be great if we took an offering and, and, and everybody just broke out in literal holy laughter during the time of the offering? Everybody, ah, 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 ah. There's a song our kids grew up listening to. I think I shared it the last time we were talking as we introduced this subject. And it's, God loves a cheerful giver. <laughs> and so the kids grew up, you know, singing this song. And, and so they got the principle by song in their mind that God loves a cheerful giver. And so as I give to the Lord, He looks at my heart. And I want it to be with joy. In Africa... They dance during the offering, whether you're Presbyterian, you're Baptist, you're Pentecost, no matter what, what you are in Africa, they dance with joy during the offering. Now that would be, that would make holy laughter break out, I think. I, I just could see some fun dancing going on, you know. Everybody's doing, and you put in, put in this offering, and, and I've heard this, and we had about 10 Liberians stay with us. They were an acapella group, and this is a number of years ago, those who remember, we had them out at the park, and they stayed at our house, and these Liberians, six of them were blind, and they had incredible voices, and they stayed with us for four days, and it was quite a kick, and now we, we spread them out, we put three in this bedroom, and three in this bedroom, and we spread them all out, In the morning we came, all ten of them wanted to be together, and they were just crammed on the floor, you could hardly even get by in this room, but they were so homesick, because they had been in the States for so long, they would pop in this videotape of their home church service, the guys that could see would narrate it for the guys that were blind, and they would all just sit there and laugh, and they said, this this is our church back home. This is our church back home. And so I'm watching it with them and they're doing the offering and everybody's dancing and they have the offering pot up here. So everybody kind of individually comes out of their aisle and they're dancing around this thing. But they had one guy that was the supreme dancer of every week and they'd say, oh, here he goes. And he would act like he was going to put it in then he'd pull back and he'd dance a little longer. He'd act like he's going to pull it in. He'd dance a little longer and all the guys are like, no, he's finally going to put it. Oh, yes, he puts it in. And they're just, you know, this is every Sunday for them back home in Liberia. And their atmosphere of giving was one that they desired to reflect the hilarious giving that the Lord wants us to have, a joyful heart in giving. That's why giving's a privilege. It's not a pressure. It's not a drag. It's not a bummer. I know that as I invest in God's kingdom, the dividends, the interest, if you will, is greater than anything I've ever had invested in Wall Street, or anywhere else because it's eternal and I'm going to experience that for eternity so Paul says not only the measure and the attitude but then he talks about the supply if if I give generously or sparingly more generously with the right attitude it says verse 8 and God is able notice the words that he's going to use here all always uh, all, every, it says, and God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you always having all sufficiency and all things may have an abundance for every good work. As it is written, 
This is a quote from Psalm 112, verse 9. He has dispersed abroad. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. And so he says, if, if you generously give to the work of the Lord, because the argument that we have, if you're in a place where you've never stepped out by faith to give besides maybe a dollar or five bucks or ten bucks here or there, if you've never stepped out by faith to see if these things are so, if you haven't proved this to know that this is true, you ought to step out by faith and check it out because I promise you it is true. And we could have testimony after testimony in our church of people that have observed that it is true. But that is the argument, I can't afford to give. Well, we don't make enough. We can't do it. We can't afford it, this and that. And you have all of these little arguments why you don't do it. And the Lord says, no, if you do it, I will make every supply that you need. I will work it all out. I will take care of your needs. I will minister to every and all, all the sufficiency God will supply. And he quotes, and, and it's a picture of a man. He has dispersed abroad, or we might say he or she has dispersed abroad. They've given to the poor, and his righteousness endures forever. And so it's the picture of a person that's going through life generously giving to the work of the Lord, giving to the poor that are in need, and the, the uh, uh, righteousness that endures forever, that, that reward that will be in heaven. Now, I, I'm not saved because I give financially, but because I'm saved, I do give. And therefore, the righteousness that is by faith is also bolstered in the fact that the reward is eternal. Now, because that's true, there is supplies that are given to a specific group of people in this circumstance and thanksgiving that rises to God because of the generous giving. In verse 10, it says, Now may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food supply and multiply the seed to you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness. And so the Lord is going to, he's going to supply the seed, he's going to supply bread, he's going to take care of these needs, and he's going to increase the fruits of your righteousness. Do you want to increase the fruits of your righteousness? As I've said a number of times, that the last thing to be converted on a person is their wallet. And not because I, I know any different. Don't think that I, I, I have no idea what anybody gives. I don't pay attention except for what I give. And that's the way I think it should be between us and the Lord, purpose in your own heart. But have you discovered that these fruits, the fruit of giving, will increase as we grow in faith in these situations? In verse 11, while you are enriched in everything for all liberality which causes thanksgiving through us to God... For the administration of this service not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also is abounding through many thanksgivings to God. So you're supplying needs. We have a specific thing that we have a box right back there right now for supplying saints who are in need. Those who are in Guatemala, those who are displaced from their families and some brothers and sisters back in the Louisiana, New Orleans area. And uh, just about three weeks ago, uh, Jeff Fadness from Calvary Chapel of Pocatello felt inspired to round up an offering from the churches, the Calvary Chapels in eastern Idaho. And 
we had been collecting for about three or four weeks just praying for the Lord's leading how we would use those resources. And I had even prayed about going back there and I really felt like the Lord wanted me just to stay here. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to stay here. And he gave me a call. It was just how the Lord worked all of that by his spirit. And I said, but we have about $2,500 that people have just been given a five, 10, a hundred bucks here or there. And we wanted to go to the brothers and sisters at the Calvary Chapel back there that we can help. And when something's so overwhelming, you can't have help everybody, but you can help some. And so uh, we sent a check down to them and they took it and they administered that gift to the pastor of Calvary Chapel. They gave it to two Calvary Chapel pastors as it helped them in the rebuilding of their church and ministry and needs that were there. And as they gave it to him, Jeff called me the next week and he said, hey, just share with the congregation that they just wept as the gift came and they praised God. Exactly what Paul wanted to accomplish in Jerusalem, our body was able to be a part of a few weeks ago from hurricane victims, brothers and sisters that are displaced. And the same two things happened. They had needs that were met and they glorified God because of it. You see, when we give to certain areas and certain needs, those needs are taken care of, but those people's hearts are turned towards the Lord. Isn't it a neat cycle that the Lord, by His Spirit, blesses us with the means and the finances to do it, We see the need and we give it. And then they praise God and this cycle starts all over again. The Lord supplies, we see the need, we minister, they praise God and it just goes in this cycle or the circle of blessing. Now it says in verse 13, while through the proof of this ministry, they glorify God for the obedience of your confession to the gospel of Christ and for your liberal sharing with them and all men, by their prayer for you who long for you because of the exceeding grace of God in you, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. They thank God for the gift, but then they prayed for the giver specifically. Those who you supply their needs pay you back in return, if you will, by bringing your name before the throne of God and asking for God's blessing on your life. This last week, I just got a letter from a missionary that we've been supporting for a number of years. You only get a letter once a year from them, and and we got this letter, and he just was thanking us for, for supporting him in the ministry. And he's pastoring a church and five people have just been baptized recently and you don't understand how uh, intense it is to be baptized in India and, and he's handing out gospel tracts and the Lord's just doing a work and he was just sharing, I'm praying for you every day. Thank you for your gift. A guy that I've never met, his name's so long I can't even pronounce it. I just call him Sure. That's the first four letters of his word, uh, of his name. I just pray, Lord, bless Sure. Use him, give him boldness. And uh, But I... I this side of heaven, I'll probably never meet this guy. And yet, as I give and I support him and supply his needs, he's praying for God's blessing on my life. And so it works. It reciprocates in the ministry of what God is doing. And there's no greater joy. Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. And Paul the Apostle quotes that in Acts chapter 20. We don't have it recorded anywhere else. So it seems like it was a, a verbal or oral tradition that Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. And have you found that to be true? If you are growing in generosity, it is a thrill to help. I would rather help than be helped. You see, it's more of a blessing to give than to receive. 
But then he declares in the last verse of this chapter, verse 15, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. And what is that indescribable gift? It's Jesus. He's the only one. Words cannot describe the the love of Christ and what he's done in our hearts and our lives. And he said earlier in chapter 8 that Jesus made himself when he was rich in heaven, stepped down to become poor that we might become rich. And Jesus is God's indescribable gift to us. Now, Paul makes for what some commentators call a very awkward transition because now he goes from this kind of joyful, this is what giving's like and it's a real blessing and he's going back and now he changes in these last few chapters to deal with what was the hard issue now in in, in 2 Corinthians and that it was false teachers and people who were despising Paul and his leadership and putting him down and disrespecting him and uh, now he takes that on head on. Correction. And it says in verse 1, Now I, Paul, myself am pleading with you by the meekness and the gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent and bold toward you. But I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. There was a group of people at the Corinthian church that were putting Paul down all the time. As we see the rest of this chapter unfold, they're they're making fun of how he talks. And they said, wow, his letters are really bold and strong. But when you're around him, I mean, the guy's a pipsqueak. He's this little guy, doesn't speak very well. But the anointing of God was upon his life. And so he says, I'm talking to you guys in gentleness and meekness. And and the whole chapter, chapter 10, you could describe it as authority. What kind of authority is the right kind of authority? Paul says that I plead with you in the meekness and gentleness in Christ, in love. That's the way Paul wanted to minister to the Corinthians. But he's going to say, you know what? I can be bold if I have to be. I can exercise the authority that God has given me. I don't want to do that. I would rather, you know, be meek and mild rather than rebuking. But I can do that if that's what you want to see, a demonstration of authority. You see, when you're meek and you're humble and you're trying to seek the Lord, there are those who misunderstand that meekness as weakness. As I seek to be humble and seek to be meek and seek to be loving and easygoing and kind and those things like that, there are times that very strong personalities look at me and they'll think that because that's my demeanor, because I think that's Christ's demeanor, that I'm weak when it comes to authority. And so... Over the years, I've had a number of confrontations. And, and, and as I talked to the people, I said, you know what? You're totally misunderstanding me. You think because I'm smiling and I'm loving and I'm gentle and I'm kind and I'm seeking to have those characteristics of the Lord Jesus that I won't deal with this issue that you're pushing here at the church. If you want a display of my authority and you want the smile to melt away and you want the seriousness and you want you know, that kind of, then I can go there. It's not like I like to do that. It's like your kids. Do you really like spanking them? I don't. I tell them, hey, I would rather have a nice day, but if you want to ruin your day, it's okay. I'll take care of that. And Paul is dealing with the church in that way. And people misunderstand. 
They misunderstand a kind, gentle, meek servant like Paul who is emulating Jesus as weak. He said, but I can be bold. And he also is going to say, those at Corinth, they really majored on the outward, as we'll see this chapter unfold, that, that you know, it's, it's bodily presence and it's the right kind of preaching voice and it's the right kind of demonstration and it's this and it's that and it's all outward stuff that Paul said. You guys don't get it, do you? The Christian life is not an external display. It is an internal reality in what the weapons of our warfare are. And that's what he begins to describe. He says in verse 3, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to obedience of Christ, and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. He says, you see, you see my bodily presence and you think that I walk according to the flesh, but the weapons of our warfare are not carnal or fleshly in the spiritual battle. They are a spiritual weaponry of prayer, the word of God, the love of God. And so as I'm praying, I'm pulling down strongholds in the realm of prayer because we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against principalities and powers. And if I came here to Idaho Falls or anybody's here ministering in Idaho Falls, if you think that you're going to come and physically somehow uh, conquer the religious stronghold of Idaho Falls, how are you going to go about this? You're going to pray and you're going to preach and you're going to love. That is the... That is the weaponry God has given us. We pray that the Lord pulls down the strongholds. We declare the truth of his word and we love people. We preach Christ and him crucified. We're not trying to be fancy. We're not trying to be slick. No dancing bears, no, you know, bells and whistles. Just simply the truth and love. Just let it rip. Let the Lord take care of everything else. Because that's what our weaponry is. To cast down every high argument that exalts itself against the Lord. And to take our own thoughts captive and bring them into submission and obedience to the Lord Jesus. So that when ultimately our obedience is taking place, then the Lord's going to take care of disobedience. He, he deals with those issues. But the weapons of our warfare, if you're struggling in issues with relationship, the first thing you begin to do is pray that the Lord, there's a spiritual battle going on. It might not just be with that person, but be praying that the Lord would change hearts, change lives, bring salvation, do a work spiritually, and to share the truth and to walk in love. That's just the weaponry of the Christian. And anybody can have it. And it doesn't matter if you're six foot five or you're, you know, four foot ten. You can have that spiritual weaponry that Paul's speaking about right here and have the whole armor of God on the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes with the gospel of peace, that sword of the spirit, the helmet of salvation, and all of those things, the shield of faith, especially the shield of faith, the quench those fiery darts of the enemy. And so the weapons that we have are mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. So we, got, we see God pulling down strongholds. I see God pulling down strongholds. But it happens on my knees. It happens through sharing the word. It happens by the love of Christ flowing through you, not by arguments and big tensions and this and that. And we're praying that the Lord does a work. And so there's that reality that this is in the spiritual realm that God is, is, is doing a work. And whether anything comes of it, we don't know. 
but we're praying, we're preaching, and we're loving. That's what we're going to do. And so we keep it real simple. Now, he says in verse 7, do you look at things according to the outward appearance? And the answer is yes, they do. If anyone is convinced in himself that he is Christ, let him again consider this in himself, that just as he is Christ, even so we are Christ. For even if I should boast somewhat more about my authority, which the Lord gave us for edification and not for destruction, I shall not be ashamed, lest I seem to terrify you by letters. For his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. Let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters, when we are absent, such we will also be indeed when we are present. He says, you guys are looking on the outward things. And, and when you looked at Paul the Apostle, he was small, he was weak, he was humble. His speech was contemptible. Paul declared in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2 that he didn't try to come with eloquent words. And, and some think because it was after his great Athens kind of debacle or discouragement, he went to Athens and, and uh, he preached Christ and him crucified and risen from the dead and different things. But there was only a few people that believed in Athens. And he went to Corinth after that and he just determined, you know what? I'm going to share it, Christ and Him crucified, not with eloquence or words, but a demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, it's not through strong personality or strong bodily presence that the work of God gets done. It's through the anointing and the empowering and the demonstration of the Holy Spirit. Years ago, I was... I had just went to San Jose to join a staff, and I was in charge of the college and career, the high school, the junior high, and something called skate church. And in the skate church thing, I was an Idaho bumpkin out of my realm. I mean, these are, uh, these are punk rockers, and they're skateboarders, and there's about 60 to 70 that would come on Thursday nights, and we would stop in the middle of the whole skating thing, and we'd share Christ with them for about 15 or 20 minutes. And this is the first time I shared with these guys, and I mean, they've got mohawks and, and uh, piercing before piercing was cool in Idaho and everything else. And, and here are all these kids, and I, I, I just told myself, you know, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to talk to them like this, and I'm going to share these examples. And I, I went through this whole thing, and... I didn't just come and share with them Christ and Him crucified and trust the Holy Spirit to do the work. I thought I was going to argue them or be persuasive or use my personality or whatever. It only took me one week to learn that because the very next week a guy was going to share and I asked him to share. He's, he had ministered to the kids before. This guy was mild in his speech. He was monotone in his speech. He got in front of these kids. He talked gently like this never raised his voice, shared Christ and him crucified, and you could sense the power of the Holy Spirit so powerfully that five kids came to Christ. And that was a week after my you know, ability to try to communicate with them with this and that. And after that, it was like the Lord just, just spoke to my heart and said, you know, it's not by your bodily presence. It's not by stories. It's not by... It's the message of Christ and Him crucified, trusting in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what it is. But the Corinthians were into polished oratory. They were into people who spoke well. They wanted to have a pastor. They wanted to have a leader that looked good on the outside. And when they said, well, who is the founder of this church? The little squeaky guy over in the corner, that's him. Paul the Apostle. 
Paul said, but if you want a demonstration of boldness, I will be bold when I come. And we know that Paul, through the authority and the anointing of the Holy Spirit on him as an apostle, that he had boldness. And, and uh, he, he did some pretty serious things with that uh, anointing of the Lord. And yet, we make the mistake of looking at people on the outside so much. Just as when Samuel was going to anoint Eliab, David's oldest brother. He told him to go to the house of Jesse and Eliab came in and he was a strong, handsome, nice looking guy. And Samuel said in his heart, he didn't speak it out loud, he said in his heart, surely the Lord's anointed stands before me. And the Lord ministered to Samuel's heart and said, I don't see as man sees. I look at the heart and I have rejected him. Get him out of the way. And he went through one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and all of them, the Lord rejected all of them. Samuel says, is this all the boys? He said, no, we've got the youngest. You know, it's David. He's out watching the sheep. He said, well, we're not going to sit down until he comes. So gets him and here comes David. We <laughs> see the excitement, young kid. The Lord said, it's him. Rise up and anoint him. Because he saw his heart. He saw his heart. And sometimes I think we overlook such potential in people because we're only looking at the outward. And sometimes we despise some of the most wonderful servants of the Lord because we're looking at the outward. He says in verse 12, before I forget, in verse 8, he says, the Lord's given this authority for edification, not for destruction. And that's what authority is all about, to build other people up, not destroy them. Verse 12 says, For we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves, but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. He says, these guys there, and he's talking about the false teachers. He's talking about specific people with faces and names that when the Corinthians read this letter, he said, he's talking about you, he's talking about you, he's talking about you. They knew exactly who he's talking about. And he said, these so-called leaders who have moved into the church, they didn't start the church, they didn't have any authority. They just came, they were Johnny-come-latelys, but now they're all of a sudden going to be Johnny on the spot and take some leadership role or some authority. And as they came and had that attitude, this is how they judge everything, by comparing him with him. Well, I like his style because he's got great illustrations. I like his style. He has a command of the Greek language. I like his style because he's very nice to look at when he preaches. And they compare themselves with themselves and they're not wise. Do you know that you and I make a huge mistake in our lives when we begin to compare ourselves? If you want to get discouraged this week, start comparing yourself with somebody else. And you'll get discouraged. Now, you might concentrate on somebody that is worse off than you so that you might be encouraged. And if you can't find somebody worse off than yourself, then you're, you're doing pretty low. You know, well, I'm better than him and I'm better than him. But I'm not as good as him and I'm not as good as him. And when you compare with one another, you are not wise. You are totally unwise. Because... I am not competing with other pastors in town. Our fellowship is not competing with other churches in town. We're co-laboring for the gospel, all of us together. The only one I'm competing against in the race of life is myself to be the best that God wants me to be. I'm not competing with him or her or them. I would get seriously discouraged 
if I compared myself with all of the great teachers and preachers on radio and TV. If I listened to the smooth talking Georgian by the name of Charles Stanley. Now listen to me. Now listen to me. Stay with me. And all of his points as he walks around and, you know, he shakes his Bible, you know, and, and this is Charles and he gets them big fingers going and he's just so smooth. I love to listen to Chuck Stanley and, 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 and listen to me and he'll have all these points. He doesn't have any notes. The guy's amazing. He's great. If I come to church, you know, no Charles Stanley. No. Uh, uh, what about Billy Graham? You know, not Billy Graham. I'm not any of those. And if you compare yourself with other people in your circle around you, well, I'm not like them. The incredible thing is God has made you who you are. You are unique. And you can't be anybody else, but you can be the best you that you can be. And you know, I have to share with you that no real fruit started coming from my life until I finally relaxed and decided that God wanted me just to be me and to serve him and stop comparing myself with everybody else. I'm not this guy. I'm not that guy. I don't have this gift. I don't have that gift, but I do have some gifts. I'm going to use those and I'm going to be faithful. All God's called me to do is be faithful with what he's given me. And that's all I can do. And then there are other people. You see, I just get over the hump of finally relaxing and not comparing myself with everybody. And then I have people come up and start comparing me with people. Well, you know, pastor, I like the way so-and-so does it, you know, and if you could just tweak, you're almost there. You're, you're not quite there. We need to kind of fix you. Can we fix you? And I said, well, I'm pretty messed up. I think I'm broke. I'm unfixable. But this is just, this is what you get. Well, well couldn't you, you know, and they'll begin to share or I heard this series by this guy or I heard Greg Laurie and I spent years wanting to be Greg Laurie, except for I wanted to be Greg Laurie with her because the guy's bald. <laughs> Didn't want to, you know, it's just great teacher, great communicator. You see, not only do you have to deal with it yourself, that I am not wise if I compare myself with others, but I also have to be secure enough in who God has made me that when others try to compare me to other people, that it doesn't frazzle me. I can just relax. And you go through life, just, hey, everybody's going to be pushing and shoving on you, trying to change you. They want you to be something you're not. And just relax. Because it's not wise. It's not smart. Verse 13. And there's really verse 13 through 18 as we conclude here. There are three things that Paul points out that if we really want to know if we're in that spot that God would have us is that, you know, are we where the Lord wants us? Is God glorified through our lives? And can um, God commend our work that we're doing? Verse 12 says, for, excuse me, verse 13, we, however, will not boast beyond measure, but within the limits of the sphere which God appointed us, a sphere which especially includes you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though our authority did not extend to you, for it was uh, to you that we came from the gospel of Christ. So he says, you know, I'm well within my limits of authority to speak to you. I'm within the limits of my authority. I founded the church at Corinth. I'm not over, you know, extending my bounds. I did and am doing exactly what God wants me to do. And Paul had that confidence that I think is so important. Are you doing what God wants you to do? 
Are you working where God wants you to work? Are you serving in some capacity here in the church as he wants you to serve? Are you functioning in the gifts that he has for you? Do you desire more than he has for you? And, and the Lord's just saying, hey, be at peace with this. Or are you at peace with not doing anything and he's wanting you to do more? Which is it? Are you where God wants you to be in service? Maybe the Lord's usher, you know, nudging you to be involved with the ushers or children's ministry or nursery or get involved with missions or he's encouraging you to give, to have that ministry of giving or praying with the men or the ladies. There's so many things that are just absolute needs. And, and are you doing what the Lord wants you to do? Are you operating in the sphere that God has opened up for you? And if God hasn't opened up for you a sphere beyond that, then that's not your problem. You see... What God requires in a servant is that he be faithful. And if God has opened up something for you, be faithful with it. And if he hasn't opened up some, something for you in a specific area, don't be frustrated by that. He hasn't opened up. He hasn't called you to be faithful to that because he hasn't worked it out for you. And so to be comfortable in the sphere and knowing that you're doing what God wants you to do. It's a tremendous joy. I believe that the, the definition of success for me is being in God's will for my life. That's the definition of self. I know that I'm doing God's will. This is what God wants for me. In that definition of success, are you doing what God wants you to do? Are you being who He wants you to be? And it's not always about doing something. It's about just being the right person in Christ. Are you walking in love? Are you edifying other people? Are you building up? Are you going through life kicking and screaming and griping and complaining and, you know, belly aching about things? Maybe you're not in the right place. Or maybe your heart's just not in the right place. Paul said, we're operating right in the sphere that God has given us. Secondly, he says in verse 15 and 16, not boasting of things beyond measure, that is, in other men's labors, but having hope that as your faith is increased, we shall be greatly enlarged by you in our sphere. To preach the gospel in regions beyond you and not boast in another man's sphere of accomplishment. Verse 17, but he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. He said, hey, as you guys grow, actually our sphere of influence grows too because as the Corinthian church grew and Paul planted that church, that sphere grew so that he could reach regions beyond where no man has labored before. We are in a place now that we can reach beyond the borders of our own fellowship, supporting missionaries and supporting mission works and, and being able for even Tammy and I to go to India this next 17 days is beyond the sphere in regions that we've never been. And that's all happened as our congregation has matured and grown and the, as the giving to support missions is there and, and the generosity of the, the congregation to share Tammy and I as we go out and minister in various places, whether it's in San Antonio, Texas a couple of weeks ago or, or to India or wherever God opens up the sphere so that let him who glories glory in the Lord. Not only are we in the right place, but is God receiving glory from the actions and lifestyle of our lives? You see, success is not only being in the center of God's will and doing what He wants you to do, but going about it in such a way that God receives the glory. Not going through it in life to where you're, you know, trying to uh, get the glory yourself. You're just, you know, 
it's a great atmosphere at our, our fellowship because when God's working and people are getting saved and as the Lord is doing his thing, you hear people all through the sanctuary and in the hallways and out on the sidewalks as they're talking. They're talking about, man, isn't God awesome? Isn't the Lord doing neat things? Isn't God, you know, and you can just overhear it. If you just walk around and eavesdrop on everybody's conversations about the things that the Lord is doing, it is a congregation and a fellowship that is glorying in the Lord. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. We've got a lot to boast about. Now we're not boasting in you know, your individual lives. We're boasting that God is working. I know I'm in the right place. And I know I'm doing the right thing when God's receiving the glory. And it's not man-directed, but it's God-directed. The worship and the boasting and everything. You know, I can boast all I want about Jesus. Isn't that cool? And I'm not, it's, it's not considered bragging about anything except God's big and God's awesome and He's doing this and that. Lastly, as we finish this wonderful section that Paul deals with some very straightforward things in verse 18, can God commend my work? For it says in verse 18, for not he who commends himself is approved, but whom the Lord commends. You know, a lot of people in their own minds go, on, go around commending themselves. They commend themselves. I'm this or I'm that. But what's important is does God commend us? It's not so important if men commend me or people pat me on the back or this or that. So some encouraging things happen that way. But one day I know I'm going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And when I stand before him, I'm going to get, have to give an account of my life. Now, James tells us that not many people should seek to be teachers, for we will have the stricter judgment. I did not want to be called pastor. I did not want to do that specifically because of that verse. I thought, why should I have a stricter judgment? I don't want to do that. I'm just a Christian that, you know, we had some Bible studies. We had a sharing time together. No, Pastor Rick, you taught a mess. No, I didn't. Shh. We have the stricter judgment. <laughs> and it means that because we're sharing God's word and we're plowing through the middle of it, that's why I like to do it verse by verse, chapter by chapter, because I'm sharing the message that he's put here to communicate to you. And as I do that, I want one day for God to commend the work that he's called me to do. I watched an interview with Billy Graham years ago with this British interviewer and, and he said, you know, uh, well, Billy, you know, you've been in the top 100 uh, most popular people in America for years. And he went on about all of the notoriety that Billy has. And Billy, after the end of it, he said, you know, I, I don't really care what everybody says about me. I only want to hear one good person say one good thing about me. And he said, I don't know that I'll hear it. But one day I'm going to stand before Jesus and I want to hear him say, well done, good and faithful ser servant, enter into the joy of your Lord. He said, I don't know if I'm going to hear it, but I sure want to hear that. See, I want to be in the right place. <laughs> I want to be doing a work that brings glory to God. And one day I want to stand before Jesus. And it doesn't matter that any man commends me for what I do. But I want him to commend me and say, well done, good and faithful servant. You were in the place I wanted you to be. 
You did it in such a way that I received the glory and now enter into the joy of the Lord. And I think in the Christian life that for a lot of us, sometimes it's easy to get mixed up in those things. We don't know if we're doing what God wants us to do. We're not sure we're going about it the way that brings glory to Him. We're not sure one day we're going to... We know we're saved by the grace of God. We know we're going to heaven, but we're going to stand before Him. And He's going to test. Our works, our labors are going to be tested with fire. And whatever comes out the other side, that's what we're going to be rewarded with. That's it. And a lot of people are cruising through life like that. Like it doesn't matter. It does matter. One day, it's going to matter a whole lot how we went out live. And so, as Paul shares this with the Corinthians, that speaks to our hearts that, you know, I just want to know what His will is for me. I can't discover God's will for your life. He never asked me to. He asked you to. It's up to you, between you and Him. And I see people that, hey, they're a banker or they're a mechanic or they're, you know, working at the site, they're an engineer or this or that, and say, well, you know, I, I'm not sure that I'm called to be a, a preacher. I'm not sure I'm called to teach Sunday school. Well, I said, pray and see what God would have you do. Maybe you have the gift of helps. Maybe you like to set up chairs before service and after service. And, you know, maybe you want to help at the Harvest Carnival. Not, not everybody's called to, to teach Sunday school or to be a pastor or to be an evangelist. But all of us are called to be his witnesses, no matter where we're at. And as you pray, he'll direct you with the gifts that you have and the appropriate sphere of influence that he wants you to have with the right authority and all that stuff. So don't go through life kicking and screaming about it. Just relax and let him work where the things open up for you and do it in such a way that one day you want him to say, well done, good and faithful servant.